Bienvenidos, mis señores y señoras. Welcome to Brownie and Blue Podcast. Today's guest, Chad Lyman, is a law enforcement veteran and a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu out of the great state of Nevada. He shares his great importance of officers' needs to be mentally fit and physically fit by way of inoculation and repetition through Brazilian jiu-jitsu. He talks about why this is so important and why and how he came to train Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu himself. Let's listen. Mi gente, bienvenidos a Brownie and Blue podcast. I appreciate you coming to uh, tune in for this episode. I have another great guest, Chad Lyman. Chad Lyman is a founder and owner of Code 4 Combat, Code 4 Concepts. He's a 23-year law, law enforcement veteran from the great state of Nevada. He served in the Gang Crimes Bureau. He's a certified SWAT operator. He's a defensive tactics instructor. He's an advanced officer survival trainer and also a firearms instructor. He's also a black belt in, in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. He's consulted with military professionals, high-profile security guards, in major police departments worldwide. Let's welcome Chad. Chad, how are you, sir? Good, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity, thank you. Yeah, it's my honor, definitely. Um, so is that pretty much the bullet points of like your career? Did you wanna add anything to that? You can boast a little bit more? <laughs> <clears throat> no, no reason to boast. It's, uh, I've I've been blessed to, to serve with uh, good departments and serve with good people. And so uh, I've been the benefit of a lot of cool things and being around a lot of good dudes. And, but uh, no, not really, not really boasting. I'm really grateful though, for the opportunity to come on and, and talk to you. Everything that we talk about today, will be kind of my views and what I think um, about different things and where my experience has taken me over the years. Um, and, you know, I don't obviously represent the department that I work for currently uh, in podcasts or in those kind of formats, but I am grateful for where I work and for uh, the the level of of law enforcement I've been exposed to uh, and been able to to do so. Awesome. So just to um, kind of get right into it, you know, I always ask my guests, what motivated you to become a law enforcement officer? So I always kind of knew I wanted to teach and coach or do uh, law enforcement or do firefighting. So I actually was a high school coach. I wasn't a high school teacher. I was going to college. I uh, played high school athletics and I coached football and basketball. Um, enjoyed that. Uh, really liked the coaching aspect and that came into play later with what I do currently along with being a police officer. And then I became a firefighter 
in Phoenix, Arizona for an outfit called Rural Metro, which is a smaller, like they contract with cities. They don't belong to a city, but they contract with city and county to provide fire service and emergency medical. Did that for about a year and realized I hated holding short <laughs> and we were holding short and guys are going down the street and getting into the mix. And I was like, I want to go with those guys. <laughs> In addition to that, even before I tried the LEO thing, um, my wife, whom I married over 30 years ago, uh, her oldest brother was a police officer in Glendale, Arizona. And when I was a teenager in the 80s, he would take us on on ride-alongs, and he doesn't work on the job anymore, so I can't get him in trouble. (laughs) But I didn't realize how under under the table these ride-alongs were. He would uh, one of his younger brothers was one of my best friends and eventually I married their sister, but, um, Fred would work graves in Glendale and we'd say, Hey, Freddie, can we ride along with you? And he'd say, sure. We'd say, okay, Friday night. And he would say, okay, well meet me at the corner of such and such and such and such at like 1115. And we said, well, isn't briefing at 10? He's like, don't you start at 10? He goes, yeah, yeah, we're doing admin stuff. It's boring. So I know now, like we didn't sign waivers. <laughs> we would both go. One would get in the back. One would get in the front. And we'd drive around with Freddie and chase bad guys in Glendale, Arizona. That's awesome. Uh, in the 80s. And that was my first exposure. Um, we had a pursuit once. Fred wasn't calling it out. I figured out later that they didn't want him to pursue people. He's just chasing this guy. And, not calling anything out. None of that registered for me as a young guy. We once got in a foot pursuit MC where the guy circled on us. We chased him around. We're running with Fred through the neighborhood, chasing this guy. And the eighties was a different time, right? And we're young. We're in high school. We're chasing this dude with, with our brother, Fred. He circles all the way back to his car, gets in and starts going again. We get back in our car and start chasing him again. So, you know, that was my initial kind of exposure was uh uh older what turned out to be brother-in-law uh very good guy it just was a different time and was that was that a big adrenaline rush i mean you did the fireside oh, yeah so you probably were like what the hell i didn't even realize this was even part of this whole thing so because oh, i was crazy. yeah because i know adrenaline rush i mean it, it depending on where you work right depending on how busy your area is or whatever the case is but uh, I know for me, that was one of the big draws because I used to do ride-alongs too. And I was in a pursuit and I was just like, oh, I'm hooked. I'm, I'm, I'm hooked because I loved, uh, you know, just the whole pace of it and just how everything happened. So we knew, we knew it'd, be, it'd be firefighting. I knew it'd be firefighting, law enforcement or, or teaching and, and uh, coaching. I figured out I didn't want to teach high schoolers. I, I definitely want to coach them. And if I would have tried to coach, I probably would have tried to coach collegiately or even at a higher level um but i didn't want to teach as much as i wanted to coach and so i tried the the fire service probably should have stuck with that i'm one of the crazy dudes who switched over to the dark side and uh within a year knew you know i gotta switch i gotta go down the street it's not working for me and uh went back to college finished college i'd gotten some college in and got my emt Went back to college, finished college, and then got on with the Portland Police Bureau in the late 90s and worked for PPB until 2004. 
And then in 2004, transferred down to uh, Southern Nevada to my current agency here uh, in Southern Nevada, where I work for Metro. Okay. So I, I know uh, this is just kind of off topic, but I know Portland, uh, you know, the past couple of years have been struggling. Do you still keep in contact or know of anything that's going on there? Yeah, so I have many, many friends who are on the police bureau there, and they're some of the finest human beings on the planet. They're some of the finest police officers uh, that sadly are decimated by administrative constraints, um, by political constraints, uh, attacked daily uh, for doing their job. And they are some of the finest people that I know, and they put up with uh, or deal with uh, huge amounts of adversity. I was from the Pacific, or the, excuse me, I was not from the Pacific Northwest. I was from the Southwest, grew up in Phoenix, grew up in LA, uh, or in Southern California, not LA itself, but, but near there, uh, Southern California, uh, Utah, um, Arizona. That's where I lived in my youth. And uh, for my wife and I, we always knew we would leave Portland. Um, but I got onto the police bureau up there through the police corps bill, which meant that I owed the department um, a minimum of four, four years. I signed a contract where wow. they kind of gave me the GI bill in reverse. Yeah. I went to school. I had money at financial aid. It was federally funded. I'd go to the academies in the, in the summer of my junior and senior year. We had living academies that were all summer long, uh, very, very extensive. Upon graduating both academies and apart, both summers and then graduating college, the, the department which had sponsored me uh, was a Portland Police Bureau. And so I went to the Portland Police Bureau to become employed. They put me through their own academy. And then I began working for the Portland Police Bureau in the late 90s. Mm. And even then, it was much, much different. When I moved to Vegas in 04, um, the, the attitude towards police, the day-to-day -day feeling uh, as an officer was much, much different in Vegas and was immediately a blessing. I didn't realize how bad it was in the late 90s. It's catastrophically bad now. So uh, partners of mine and friends of mine still work for that department. Mm -hmm. And like I said, they, they are some of the best people on the face of the earth and they put up with some of the most adversity. Uh, you talk about being judged for a uniform color or for uh, what you do as a profession being judged as a whole, mm -hmm. as a group of people. Uh, that's a prime example, uh, what happens to those men and women daily. For sure. And, uh, yeah, very yeah. against everything we actually did as law enforcement yeah. and still do very against the attitudes you or I would hold, mm -hmm. uh, where we would feel like that would be improper and not appropriate to judge groups of people or make such broad, um, stereotypical, uh, attitudes that then form policy that's based on nothing. So, yeah. Uh, really, really glad I switched. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm, really I'm sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, you, you're in a 23 year career and you had a motivation from your brother-in-law, then your friend. <laughs> um, and then what motivated you? So now you, 
so you're a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but what motivated you to become focused on BJJ and implementing that into your life? So early on in my career, <clears throat> within about the first year, I realized that I wasn't good at controlling people. I was more than willing to, um, if, if someone was trying to hurt someone else or trying to hurt me or my partners, uh, I didn't mind entering that fray. In fact, that's why I left the fire service was to try to make a difference uh, with with subduing violent people. And, and that was one of the motivations. So I didn't mind um, doing that. But my athletic background and my coaching background, interestingly enough, when I was critical of my own performance, I realized I wasn't very good at controlling people and getting them into custody. And I really didn't know what the answer to that would be. And so I began, I actually went to a Taekwondo studio in Portland. I knew I needed some outside training. I knew from my athletic background, I was a successful athlete um, despite being an average athlete. Mm -hmm. I played for very good teams in high school. We played in the highest classification in, in Arizona. Uh, teammates of mine, I had a teammate playing the NBA, playing the NFL, and play Major League Baseball. So oh, I had nice. teammates who played all three. Yeah. They came out of my high school. So I played with good guys and was competitive. Um, and it was because of my the way I approached the game and I practiced all that. Well, when I looked at my performance police-wise, I said, you know what? The most common thing I do is try to get someone into handcuffs, and I'm actually not super good at it. And the stuff they taught me in the academy, I'm not practicing regularly. And I knew from my own background that the only way to be good at something is to work at it on a regular, consistent basis. And that's your marriage. That's your relationship with your kids. That's, that's your education. That's your physical fitness. That's whatever. So I knew custody and control of a person who didn't want me to gain custody and control them would have the same thing. So not knowing what what to do, I looked at uh, Taekwondo, I looked at, uh, and that had no control. I mean, you're fighting in space, trying to kick each other. Yeah. You can't even grapple. If you grab each other, they actually break you apart. So that was the opposite of what yeah. I wanted to learn. Um, and uh, guys who had done it for a long time, it was interesting. They would have class where we would punch the air and kick the air. And then they would have um, sparring night and sparring night was once a night and it was a really big deal. And they would all be really freaked out by it. And I'm like, well, I go to sparring night every night at work. So I can't have it be this emotional. It's got to be like a normal thing. Right. And uh, so that didn't work. So then I went to a Kempo karate school in Portland and they were kicking the crap out of each other. They were actually fighting hard, but their answer to everything was to kick in the groin or poke his eye out. And I'd be like, well, what if someone doesn't want to turn around and be handcuffed? And they're like, well, throat punch him and then groin kick him. And, you know, that'll be good for the cameras, the right? And walk away. And I'm like, well, no, I can't really. And by the way, neither should you. Yeah. You're going to get arrested. Like you're teaching people nonsense. All this stomp the groin stuff, kick people on the, in the head on the ground. You're going to get arrested. Like, no one can do that. So <clears throat> that was not a good fit. Um, and then I found a, a straight blast gym, which Conor McGregor is the most famous straight blast gym in Ireland, but their headquarters is in Portland, Oregon. Oh, wow. And at the time, it was uh, still headquartered and run. The, the founder of that team is a guy named Matt Thornton. And Rob Fallis was 
a coach in those early days. And Dennis Davis, who now coaches with me as extreme couture, was a white belt student with me back in the day. And uh, what got me interested in jujitsu, though, is my brother had been doing jujitsu for about nine months. And he came to visit me and he tied me into pretzels and choked me and, and submitted me multiple times. He'd been training about nine months. And uh, we always have been physical brothers and rolled around and boxed. We thought we were boxing. We were terrible at it. Yeah. We thought we were good at it. Once he started doing jujitsu, he was doing jujitsu in Phoenix with Megaton Diaz, um, whose daughter fights in the UFC currently. Okay. And um, he, uh, he just dominated me. And then he said, you got to watch this, this UFC. And uh, these were the early UFCs. Hoist was winning. Um, I got a hold of some VHS tapes, watched those. And then I walked into Straight Blast Gym on MLK Boulevard in Portland, Oregon, back in the day that gym since moved uh, to Southeast Portland. And uh, those guys had an answer for everything. The self-defense aspects, they were really good at fighting, just like the karate guys, but better. And then they were really good at controlling people. And they could, they could, um, they could gauge uh, the level of violence that they needed to inflict based on how good or bad or how much threat the bad guy was putting them in. For example, mm-hmm. like when we would, and they would spar regularly. It was every day, right? But it wasn't. It wasn't like getting hyped up, and it wasn't emotional. It just was something we did daily. And so uh, from that point forward, I started training uh, with that team. Now, at that time, there was no gi jiu-jitsu that I know of in Portland, Oregon. We were all doing no gi, and we were doing MMA, and we were mixing in sticks and wow. hitting each other with crap. And it was it was, it was was uh, Straight Blast originally. The, the name Straight Blast Jam comes from Jeet Kune Do, that Bruce Lee stuff, the JKD stuff. And they were originally a JT, JKD school, and that's where the name Straight Blast Gym came from. That's like a move in, in JKD where you come forward throwing punches. And uh, so they, their history, their background was JKD, and then they moved away from that and moved to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and MMA. And so now the SBG is their, is their uh, initials. So those guys, our early Jiu-Jitsu was, was Hickson. And then Randy Couture wanted to fight in the UFC, and he came to SBG for his grappling. And Hickson said, well, he can't fight Brazilians. And we said, well, he's going to. And this is all – I'm not in these meetings, right? I'm a white belt at the time. Right. This is what I understand historically. And then uh, they said, well, we're going to train Randy and Dan Henderson and Matt Lindland. And uh, so Hickson said, well, you can't do jiu-jitsu under me. And they switched to Hegan Machado, and they were under the Hegan Machado. Okay. System, and they stayed there under Chris Howder, Hegan Machado. And so that lineage became important to me because I got my blue belt from Chris Howder, who was one of the first 12 Americans to earn a black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Wow. And, uh, but that got me started. And I noticed immediately a difference in my ability to control people at work and, and actually not punch them or have it devolve into some crazy nonsense. And that's when the, I realized, well, this is what I need to be doing. So I would work uh, my normal work week, overtime, whatever I'm doing, and then I would make sure that I was training either before work, at work, uh, right before work in the hallway. Uh, I got guys training eventually, 
we would literally train in the hall and guys would have to step over us to go to the locker room. <laughs> we would show up a couple, a couple days early. Uh, two of our four work days, we would show up uh, at least 45 minutes early and we would train in the hall on fold-out mats uh, leading to the locker room in our area command. Mm. They called them precincts. Yep. And so once I started training, I, I just didn't stop. And I was training after work a couple times a week and and that's kind of how I got into jiu-jitsu but it's always been for me jiu-jitsu and MMA I've always uh had punches or knives or guns mixed in with the jiu-jitsu gotcha so I mean that's a that's a storied history because you've mentioned a lot of a lot of big names and origins with MMA especially the Gracies um who didn't they bring – they brought Brazilian jiu-jitsu here, correct? Say that again. My my AirPods uh, died on me. Who, uh, who brought – The Gracies, the Gracie family. Are you able to hear me? I can now. Go ahead. Yeah, the Gracie – the, yeah, the Gracie family. I mean, that's a, that's a huge name. They're uh, seen as like the – the forefathers of uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu and, uh, you know, how they, how all that came about and then how it spread across in the, the U.S. And here you are training under, you said Hickson, right? Hickson Gracie? Yeah, we would never really see him, though. You know, he lived in California. He'd come up for a seminar. Um, and, and, and so that's who we were technically under yeah um once we went under hegan uh, hegan was kind of the same thing he would come up for a seminar those guys live in warm weather they don't like <laughs> the rain and stuff but chris howder would come up and see us on a pretty regular basis and chris howder had a huge influence on on my jiu-jitsu and still does to this day uh chris howder and matt thornton and rob fallis and then um, kind of what happened is the gyms split, uh, as gyms do. And I wasn't part of that again. And on the political side of why gyms split, I don't get involved in any of that. Yeah. Uh, I've remained, I was dear friends with Robert Fallis until his, in, until unfortunately he took his own life. And then, mm. um, I've remained friends with Matt Thornton and will remain friends. I think he's a phenomenal instructor. And, uh, I'm more friends with those guys than with Hickson or Hegan, although I'm, Certainly not opposed to Hicks and Hegan and grateful for their family bringing jiu-jitsu to the U.S. And uh, certainly those guys are, are, are great guys. But instructionally, Matt Thornton and Chris Howder and then Michael Chapman, who operates Impact Jiu-Jitsu, still operates it to this day. Uh, Michael Chapman had a SBG affiliate at the time that was closer to my house. And so uh, Randy and... Matt Lindland and Rob Fallis split from SBG and Open Team Quest. But that location was even further from my house. And when that split happened, Rob had kind of been my primary instructor with Matt as well. And I'd learned from both guys. Both guys are incredible. I still use teaching methodologies from both guys. But at the time, I had to make a decision on simple availability to train. And the Beaverton location, which is near where I lived, was owned by a guy named Michael Chapman. And and Mike, and conversely at this time, 
we had really started training in the gi quite a bit as as a team. Uh, gi jiu-jitsu had been introduced, gi classes at all the SBG gyms. And I really liked the gi because, um, you know, I wear a uniform at work. Guys could grab stuff. I In Portland, where I worked, people generally were wearing a lot of clothes year-round. I could grab all the clothing. Mm. It's a more technical game. You can't out-athlete your way through stuff. Uh, I can slow you down and get grips. Grips were important to me as a police officer to control yep. hands. Also, in my takedowns, a lot of, I set up a lot of my takedowns off of grips and on balancing. And uh, so I, I, I kind of gravitated to the gi. And we had it at both locations. It just was that Mike's location was actually more convenient. The class times were better. And I switched to Mike's location and Michael Chapman is kind of my guy today he's a guy who stripes me either he or Chris um and and Chris is Mike's guy and then Mike and Chris are kind of my guy but Mike I would say as a, a direct influence um on my jujitsu over my over 20 years Mike Chapman's probably had uh uh the most direct contact with me and I'm really grateful for uh, his mentoring both as as coach and then his promoting me over the years. But my early days were filled with great guys that I still have fond memories of and still yeah. look to and communicate. I stay in contact with Matt Thornton, um, still feel like he's a great resource. And and his guys um, in his network are all guys that I know. And, and they're all guys that started with me. We were all white belts and blue belts, and we just never quit. The guys who never quit, we're all teaching now. (laughs) We're all uh, cemented in this thing, and it's been kind of a cool journey. I'm cemented with dudes who fought in the UFC, dudes who fought um, at the highest levels, and uh, what a great blessing that I happened to sign up at that. And then it's never been not – every gym I've ever been at has been a high-end gym, and I've just been extremely blessed. Well, so this kind of leads into my next question uh, for you, Chad, is that, you know, there was probably you had a certain mindset with law enforcement. You kind of described it as far as it probably came from like sports and being good at sports and all that stuff. And then you got into the law enforcement profession and then you realized you, you couldn't grab or you couldn't do or control guys to the point that you wanted to. Um, and then you went into BJJ. So what was the mindset like? post BJJ or even during when you were learning, like, how did you, how did, how was that metamorphosis in the mindset? And then also, you know, we have, so two questions, explain the mindset with BJJ and going into law enforcement. And then the second question is, we have these things out right now with snippets of all these use of force cases and I heard you on a podcast previous where you talked about the difference between these snippets is the training that officers don't undergo in the sense of how the violence of action that they provide in a camera snippet is bad because of the lack of training that they have. And so can you explain that piece as well and what you mean by that? So the metamorphosis to this, yeah. Let's start with mindset first, because this is so key. This is why I was not a martial artist prior, but, but I, you know, I grew up in a neighborhood that my brothers and I would, if there was, if we had to defend our lunch money, we would defend it. We wouldn't give you our lunch money. Right. We were 
poorer. And so there were opportunities to defend our lunch money. <laughs> and it just was part of the neighborhood I grew up in. Uh, if you did certain things, you were going to get in a fight and, and, mm. or not, you could just take it, but we were not made to take it. My older brothers of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt as well. Uh, we're both American born brothers and we both stayed with it over 20 years. We both still train and he's a high end guy. I'm very, very, very tough. Mm. And, um, you know so but we didn't have jujitsu we didn't we didn't train formally anywhere uh we just were willing to defend our lunch money and so then i became a police officer and there a large part of the job is communication and 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 thinking your best weapon systems are your mind and your mouth as a police officer and and most things can be de-escalated without violence and should be and uh that's always my goal Mm -hmm. However, there are situations that call for you to um, put your hands on people and, and or they just put their hands on you, which is more common in, in situations where force must be used. They're attacking you or someone else. So I found in those situations where they were attacking me or someone else that my mindset during those situations was to do whatever I could do to win. And, and so I'm just fighting to win for lack of a better word, and it's all mindset. And the mindset is similar to when I was young and, and I got into a fight on the corner. You you just keep fighting until you either win or he quits or you lose. Mm -hmm. And then as a law enforcement officer, the losing part's not really a good option because I'm armed and I, losing could mean death. So there's no more losing. You, you, you have to do your best to win. But there's still policy and there's law. You got to follow these things in the middle of the fight under this adrenaline dump. And what I found is that my, my, my mindset was willing. My physical ability and capability, I lifted and ran and I was strong. That was willing. But what I didn't have is uh, the proper software, the proper skill set. And so I, I, in my mind, my mindset went to Okay, you got a mindset to win and you're willing to fight. If you have to fight, you don't want to, but you will up to and including fight as hard as you need to fight. But you need to acquire the skill set. It would be like me saying, I'm going to be the best baseball hitter in the world, but I'm not going to practice hitting baseballs. I'm going to lift weights and do CrossFit. And I'm going to have this will to win. I'm going to hit home runs. I'm going to convince myself of it. And I'm going to go up to the plate and go, man, I'm just going to hit the ball. But I'm not going to do any training on how to hit the ball. It's absolute nonsense. And it's what most police officers and most departments, quite frankly, teach is this mindset and the will to win and all this stuff. Hey, that stuff's great. But if you can't hit, hit the baseball, you can't hit it. And if you don't practice, you can't hit it consistently and hit it well. Okay. So I took the mindset of will to win. And I, I said, well, what does win mean in the law enforcement context? And most guys will say, well, it means going home and it means surviving. That's not what it means. You get sued and still go home. You could get arrested at the end of this event, still go home. You could get fired. For me, what it means is I'm professionally competent at what's required for the job. So that's why I started seeking other training. And the mindset that led me to seek out martial arts was I need to figure out, I need to find a system that lets me put my hands on people regularly and does it with the emphasis on control and dominant position. Because when we would get into fights with people, the handcuffing happens on the ground and they have to be face down 
We have to get their arms in a certain position. And that's when the cuffs finally go on on a person who's resistant. On a person who lets you set them up and cuff them, I don't need jujitsu. I don't need anything. Right. Person, crap, if, if they could comply, they would just put their hands behind their back and handcuff themselves. I don't need anything for that guy. What I need is a skill set that allows me to deal with the guy who doesn't want you to put the cuffs on them or the gal. They can be extremely challenging. So that was what led me into a search. When I performed that search, I performed that search from an athletic background with an athletic outcome. That athletic outcome was I need to find systematically something that allows me to win positions, allows me to control another human being, and then work their arms into this completely unnatural position, both at once behind their back. And I need to do this in a way that I'm also um, taking due care of them physically while I'm doing it. Mm. And, and the only place that that comes from is wrestling and jujitsu. You need the MMA aspect because strikes might need to be utilized at some point. And then you need to introduce weapons because that's a reality of the environment you're in. You need to even introduce uh, multiple people, all kinds of things into your training. But your basic skill set has got to be jujitsu or wrestling. And, and I just figured that out by approaching it from how do I get good at this sport, for lack of a better word. I realized law enforcement style of sport. But the sport was physical fight where I got to have the dude end up on his belly with his hands behind his back. That's, that's the sport. I think, I think you, yeah, you touched on sport and I think um, people like you and I and uh, officers like you and I that have had a career, law enforcement isn't just sitting in a car. You have to be ready to act and have to be ready to move quickly. And so I always looked at it as a sport in the sense of it's a tactical ability or tactical sport. So you have to train that way. You have to train with, you know, plyometrics or, as you said, you know, with BJJ and, you know, MMA stuff. And so you can't train. You're right. I mean, if you, if you do things and you say, I'm going to win, but yet you never do any of the training that goes with the winning or that goes to the preparedness of the winning, then all you're doing is just giving lip service because the people that are out there that we deal with on, or we dealt with on a daily basis, there's people, there's criminals that are training. (laughs) There's there's criminals that are in, probably BJJ schools and they're training every single day. And so, you know, there's instances where officers are getting choked out and uh, you know, they're getting the dominant position is from the, from the criminal per se um, and not from anybody else. Um, And the officers really ill-equipped. And so that's where we see this balance of action on the media where you have a six minute snippet. And I was talking to a buddy who's a law enforcement officer and I was asking him this question And he said, yeah, he said, it's true. He said, the violence of action really looks bad on the media front because the officer's scared. So they really don't know what else is going on. They really don't know what else to go to. So they have to do this kind of like violent thing. Uh, And it's almost a sense of like, you know, fear um, of whatever the situation is, as opposed to being calm and knowing that this is what they can and can't do to control this person. So, so you just covered such great points and current, current valid points in our, in our profession. So you mentioned fear. Um, 
And I, I think it's a valuable thing. And I think it's misunderstood in terms of use of force. There is a legal requirement when I use force or violence upon another human being that I have a reasonable fear mm. that if I don't use these physical actions against this other person, this bad articulable thing could happen. So you're nodding your head because you totally understand this as a law enforcement officer. Right. But if we have some of our friends who enjoy BJJ or they follow me and they're not cops. Let me explain what I mean. And it's 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 misportrayed by the media and it's misportrayed by people who might be anti-police. And the most common place this fear is talked about is in cases where the media will cover an officer involved shooting an OIS. And and an OIS, if we have a lawsuit or a a criminal uh, hearing to clear the officer, indict them, whatever the case may be, on an OIS, at some point the officer has to articulate a fear and that, and, and generally all they play on the news is they'll, they'll say, Hey, the officer said he was in fear for his life or the life of others. And then we'll have all these people go, how could he be afraid the gun was fake? Or how could he be afraid? Uh, the guy was turning away from him at the moment. He shot him in the back because the guy's actually pointing the gun and then turns to run and shoots him in the back. How's he afraid at that moment? And they, they don't understand the dynamics of what's going on on the scene. And there's, we won't go all the way down that rat hole other than to touch on fear. What they don't understand is it is a legal requirement for me to articulate a fear. And that was why I did ABC. And that even it goes all the way down to if I punch someone, although it's not normally articulated that way. If, if, if a bad guy is actively, I, I go on a call of a disturbance and I get there and a male is straddling a female and punching her and I have to run in and tackle him off and he, He's resisting, grabbing her by the hair, still punching her as I'm trying to pull her off and I punch him and then he turns his attention to me and I drag him away. And uh, We managed to get him into custody, but I punched him a couple times. I'm going to have to articulate why those strikes were necessary. And it always goes back to a, a fear, but, but you and your friend and in, in looking at officer's performance, I really like where you're going because my goal is to promote training for officers that allows that fear to be knowledge-based, not emotion-based. Mm. And so what I mean by that is if I put you in enough situations, and once again, think sport or, or train sport, that means we're going to train by punching each other. That's part of the training. Uh, we're going to train by, by trying to hold each other down. It's going to be hands-on physical training like football practice. We're going to tackle each other. So train sport, but think street. And in our case, think LEO. What's our law enforcement outcome? What could I or couldn't I do in a law enforcement setting here? Uh, those things we're going to implement into the training, but we're going to train it athletically. So that my fear, if, if you had a choke on me right now and you were working to finish me, I wouldn't have a fear of being choked out. I've been choked out uh, many, many times. You know what? It feels like nothing. You go to sleep. It's actually super peaceful to be choked unconscious. Now I'm not advocating we choke people unconscious, but I'm telling you from my experience, I'm not afraid of the actual being choked unconscious. That's not going to be a painful experience. Uh, as long as you let it go, I'm going to wake up. If you don't let it go, that could be a permanent experience, but I'm not going to feel pain from being choked out with a blood, a blood strangle, uh, uh, some kind of use of my shirt, some kind of uh, use of carotid restraint. It's not going to produce pain for me. It's not going to produce injury for me. Um, 
typically. So I don't have a fear of the experience. I may have a fear of the consequence if we're engaged in an unlawful physical battery where you're trying to harm me. I have a fear of the consequence of me falling prey to that technique, but I don't have a fear of the technique itself hurting me, like pain-wise or whatever. I've actually been knocked out uh, in training or knocked silly. Now, once again, I'm not advocating we do that to anybody. I don't want to hurt anyone. You know what that feels like? That doesn't feel like anything either. Yeah. When you get hit hard enough that you're out, you don't even know what's going on. Now, that one hurts later. Uh, you know, you get concussed. I've been concussed in American football. I've hit somebody so hard that I didn't know what was going on and that my head hurt and I threw up after the game and all that stuff. And I, I had documented concussions. Uh, at the point you get concussed, it just feels like a huge imp- It doesn't feel like anything. So I'm no longer afraid of you hitting me solidly or you choking me because I've experienced that. That The myth, the mythical, what that's going to feel like is gone for me. So I'm not afraid of that. What I'm afraid of, if there is a fear, is a knowledge of what will happen to me if you put me into that state. So I have to defend myself. But my fear now is based on knowledge, not on fear of what might or might not happen. So if you're swinging like you don't know what you're doing and you're windmill punching me, that doesn't produce an out-of-control, over-the-top response from me. I'm going to be extremely calm. I'm going to clinch you. I'm going to trip you to the ground. I'm going to hold you down. I'm going to talk to you calmly like I'm talking to you right now. And I'm going to work you to your belly. And I'm not going to punch you at all because you're ineffective in your strikes. My fear is now based on knowledge. It's not based on an emotion. I'm not afraid you might try to hit me. I'm afraid you might hit me uh, effectively. Now, conversely, if you shoot a really clean double and I feel you control my hips and take me to the ground and you're trying to achieve knee on top and you have good pressure and you're pulling up on my head while you try to hit me, well, that guy's going to get a more uh, a more aggressive response from me. Out of but that fear is based on training. It's based on experience. It's not based on what I think in my mind may may or may not happen, because I've experienced all those things. Now we can instill that kind of. So let's go back to your statement. Some of the videos of officers is where they're legitimately afraid. I think they are. If you gave them a ton of training, they would still have a measure of fear, but it wouldn't be emotional fear. Mm. And and what I would like to happen for officers is that your fear is based on knowledge, not on emotion. And when your fear is based on knowledge, you can quickly begin to discern how big a threat is this guy really? Everyone is a threat, by the way, and I'm not dismissing it. And by the way, could the, could the crappiest guy who's motivated to try to hurt you get lucky and land that shot? Sure, that could happen. But I'm dealing with math. I'm not dealing with hope. I'm right. dealing with mathematical. And can I, can I, through good tactics, lessen your ability to, to likely cause me harm or significant injury? Absolutely. So training begins to take that fear and say, well, what can I do to mitigate uh, what might happen? And then I began to institute that in my interaction with this person. And then even when it goes physical, I begin to inst- institute trained physical tactics that begin to work 
And now all of a sudden, I'm staying at this low level of control in my application of force, and it's not going out of control up into the lethal realm because I'm effective at a lower range. And my other guy, my, my, my opponent, conversely, is not effective. Even though he's angry, he's motivated. He might be high, he might be mentally ill, he might be committed to not going to jail. He's horrible at fighting. So it doesn't matter. It's like a big child. And yeah. I'm just holding him down and moving him into positions. He's getting worn out. Uh, I'm not getting worn out because I do this all the time. And I'm working him into handcuffs. And also that that fearful emotion burns so much energy. Mm-hmm. You quickly get gassed and tired. Yeah. If you have knowledge-based fear, not, not emotion-based fear, you can manage your gas tank because you're not operating on pure emotion. So training really changes my performance as a police officer. One thing I want to point out though, I'm not the guy, like you will never see me uh, because I do train police departments. I train officers. That is a business for me. I'm in the business of trying to improve the performance of police. Uh, You will never see me use a post and then use it to to um, pump up myself. In other mm. words, show an officer who the performance is not great. There's also a difference between an officer not performing well in a physical in a physical confrontation with a bad guy or getting beat or 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 struggling and that being unlawful or against policy. It might just be that that department has not provided training to that officer. And then he hasn't gotten out and gotten it, which I'm a huge advocate. If your department won't train you, you should be training because at the end of the day, you're the one at risk. But I never absolve the bad guy from his, um, from his responsibility and neither do the courts. Why do the courts continually not indict these officers? It's not because they're on their side. It's because it's unlawful on its face to fight the police. Yep. You fight the police, bad things can happen, and the courts understand this. That doesn't mean the courts won't award some kind of civil liability, but very rarely do they go criminal. Why? Because it's not a criminal act for a cop to, to use violence on you if you're using violence on the police officer and you're resisting. Right. Graham v. Connor, one of the three prongs is, is he resisting or attempting to flee, and is he using violence to do it? It's right. the lowest prong or probably the least important. The most important being, is this person a, a threat to myself or anyone else right. physically? And then that first prong, what's the crime involved? Well, those three prongs from Graham, one of them is, is this person actively resisting arrest at the time force is used? Civilians don't understand this. So I'm never going to build my business by going, oh, well, that's excessive force. No, it's not. <laughs> it's ineffective force. Now, I will build my business on that. I will train you so you're not ineffective in those moments when you have to use force because your life's on the line. I think uh, absolve yeah. the bad guy. Yeah. Fighting. And that's the thing. So I think you, you touched on something. I mean, the first word that came to mind is inoculation. And you talked about it with sports and you also, it correlates to everything law enforcement related. And part of the problem that I've seen with law enforcement agencies is they do MIRs or, you know, certain yearly trainings, but, but some places don't even have the resources to kind of do that. Right. And depending on 
where you're coming from. So you do have the problem that I've seen in law enforcement is you have poorly trained officers because they cannot be inoculated in certain incidences that happen or that can happen to them. And so ultimately you also have an accountability issue where you just said it, right? If your department isn't gonna offer the training or can't offer the training due to resources or whatever it may be, then you as the officer need to go out and seek it yourself, right? And, and I've, I, I came from a department where it was a large department, very well funded and resourced, and they would have people like you and, you know, very well-known people to come and do physical, uh, tactical training, all this stuff. And you would see the same 10 or 12 guys that would sign up for that class to do it. And then what about the other 1,500 that are still on the department that don't even care to do it? So I guess my this, this kind of goes into this question for you is that, you made a great analogy where you called, uh, you said the zoo line and how that applies to LEOs. And I wanted to give that with what we're talking about here, because I think it coincides. It, it, it absolutely does. And, and once again, my start in training was a critical review of myself, my own performance and not my willingness to perform and not my physical fitness, but my, 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 my skill sets or attributes. And that, correlates with the zoo lion. Uh, if you think of two lions, uh, one is in the zoo and one's in the wild. And so imagine these two lions in your mind and, and imagine even a, a, a small pride of lions in the zoo. Um, who feeds the lions in the zoo? Clearly the zookeeper. What if one gets sick? They, they use a bet. What if it's a stormy night and it's lightning and thunder? They'll get, they got shelter in the zoo enclosure. What if I, have one lion who begins to physically dominate and fight the other lions. They'll isolate them and put them away. So these lions grow in captivity and let's say lions are born in this pride and, and we have a second or third generation lion. They have teeth, they have claws, uh, they are lions. Um, humans find that out when they occasionally try to jump in their enclosure because they think they're not lions anymore. <laughs> Right. You see, they're clearly lions. You know, <laughs> oh, who would have thunk it? Yeah. Um, they're lions. But that's a zoo lion. And then think of uh, the wild lion who's born in the wild and he's raised up. How does he get food? He, he hunts uh, or they, they don't eat. Um, how do they, what if a lion picks on them? They fight back. Now, they may run off to live another day, but but there's a fight, there's a battle. Every day is a battle for. Those lions, what if they get hurt? They mend over time. Um, what if uh, it's a stormy night or something bad is happening to them? Well, they, they just find whatever shelter, they endure it. So for the lion in the wild, there is struggle uh, every single day. For the zoo lion, those things are taken care of. If I took a zoo lion and I put him in the wild, he is a lion. But the first time he runs into a wild lion, you know, I ask classes, I'll say, what would happen with the zoo lion if I put him in the wild? And they all correctly say he would die. And I say, how soon? And they say, very soon. And I say, pretty much as long as it took him to die, he would go from being alive to not being alive anymore. Mm -hmm. And that, that would be it. He'd be done. What if other lions came? Other lions would probably kill him is what would happen. Um, 
What if I took a wild and a lion, a wild lion and put him in the zoo? He could survive. They would have to isolate him though, because he would run that thing. And uh, so, <clears throat> what's the difference in my two lions? And and the difference is knowledge gained through struggle. Mm-hmm. You can only gain true knowledge in any aspect of your life. Struggle is good for you. I'm convinced of it. And struggle must happen in training. It must happen in physical training for police officers. And police departments should be providing their officers with training that that includes struggle. Now, that struggle does not need to break or hurt them. Extrapolating on my lion example, how does a young lion learn to hunt or fight? They play do it. They do it and play forever right. until they finally go on a real hunt. And then they don't even catch anything on their first couple hunts. They don't even get close because they blow it because they're so excited. They get out there in the zebra or whatever, run away. Then they finally get one they catch up to, and that one probably kicks them off and gets away. They, they don't have successful hunts right out of the gate. It, it takes them a year and a half of playing with each other and no one getting hurt. So can we train that way? Absolutely. Now, it's not play, but – you shouldn't be hurting each other. People shouldn't be losing teeth, breaking their nose, breaking their hands and training regularly. Uh, those things are going to happen. It's a dangerous game we're in. But, um, but you can control those injuries through good methodology, through approaching it just like a tackle football team. Yep. They're literally tackling each other, running into each other, blocking each other, but they're controlling it through specific drilling, pace, uh, how far we're going to go in a particular practice session, how many people are going at once, what's the outcome or goal of this particular training session. We can do the exact same thing. And much like a lion, but let's circle back to the lions. There are a ton of police officers who put on a badge and put on a uniform, and they are a quote-unquote lion, but they are a zoo lion mm. because they have not gone through and continued. At what point does a lion stop practicing at what point do they stop actually putting into practice? They never stop. There's no off season for what I do. I don't have an off season. It's a hundred percent of the time, all the time. Uh, uh, and so I'm training, I'm training for the event that I'm going to incur constantly. And so there's no zoo lions. I only have wild lions. I even tell this to my kids. I don't have any, I don't raise zoo lions. It's only wild lions. And so um, this same analogy applies to law enforcement training. If you are not training with struggle, hand to hand, and that's going to be the safest way to do that is jujitsu, wrestling, boxing, MMA. If you're not doing that as a police officer on a regular basis, then you're a zoo lion and uh, you're going to get exposed. You're going to run into somebody who's not, and then you're going to figure it out. Now, I'm under no illusion that I'm tougher or better. I might run into another wild lion, and I might lose. You know, it it is what it is, but I'll know that I prepared. But you know what? Even even as you say that, you're preparing as a wild lion, as an officer, and you run into another wild lion. The fact is, is that you're better prepared, so your result may not be your life as opposed to the zoo lion, which is the untrained officer that runs into the wild lion and they are going to pay for their, with their life um, because they don't have the knowledge, right? They don't know the body language. They don't know the squaring off technique. They don't know 
you know, the, the markers of what a pre-attack looks like, or they don't know the speech pattern or whatever these things are that even in fighting, because you have inoculated yourself with the training, you've seen it, you know it, you know, you're better able to prepare. And that's what I love about that is even if you prepare as a wild lion, your, your life may be less in the sense of risky, you know, as opposed to if you're just unprepared and just go out there and think that, oh, this is just another day. Well, and, and to further that point, I mean, the biggest preparation, because I can, I can somewhat start to read all those signs. I can do all those things right up to the fight and become extremely proficient if I just pay attention day to day and patrol. But feeling an attack, feeling what it's like to get hit, feeling mm. what it's like to have somebody really on top of you, feeling what it's like to have somebody trying to choke you. I'm going to feel that tonight. I'm going to Jits tonight. <laughs> They're going to come after me. Uh, I'm going to teach what I'm going to teach. I already know what I'm going to teach. I've studied it. I know the positions we're going to work tonight. I know the goals we're going to work for. But there's going to come a time tonight, today, when I shake hands with a, with a worthy opponent and uh, we're going to start in bad positions because that's what we're training today and we'll start in those spots and I will start in those spots and they're going to come after me and they're going to try to finish me once. Now, they're going to allow me to quit when I'm totally in danger and I can't get out. They're going to let me quit tonight. Uh, we'll see if they can get me to that point. We'll see. I've got some killers. I, it, it could happen. But that's the stuff that you can't get in a PowerPoint. You can't get anywhere else. Yeah. You have to have that happen to you repeatedly so you know what it feels like. And uh, that's the stuff I, I, I can't do any other way. Yeah. You have to do this with struggle. If you will, though, I guarantee you what will begin to happen is you'll begin to understand when you need it, when you don't. And, and, Here's the thing, you'll be safer. So it's a weird dynamic. I, I don't advocate that we train jujitsu so that, so that the bad guy's safer. Um, although I do agree that that is a worthy goal and that that does happen. I advocate doing that so that I'm safer as mm -hmm. a person administering force. Once I'm safer, then I'll be able to use a lesser amount of force, which will benefit the other guy, but I'm not an advocate for training more because I think police are inherently using inappropriate force or inherently violent or inherently racist or inherently anything. Right. I'm telling officers and the public, whoever wants to listen to this, that violence is at time part of the law enforcement day. That is the truth. So if that is true, we should give our officers the tools that when that becomes the answer, that they are using it appropriately and that they are skilled at it so that they can use the lower levels and be successful. Now, if I use a lower level and it's not, not, not successful, make no mistake, there's no problem in my mind if it's needed, justified, correct. And if the knowledge, the fear my knowledge base is saying, okay, this is not going to work on this guy. You need to use a tool up to and including my firearm. That's what's going to happen. Yeah. But that's going to be based off hours and hours of training. And when I articulate it later to civilians who weren't there, they're going to go, I get it. And they're going to go, yeah, it's reasonable. I think why is it reasonable? Because I can base it on hundreds of hours, 
and I can talk about exactly what I tried that was lower level that didn't work that I'm proficient at and it didn't work for whatever reason. He's too strong. He's too motivated. He trains too. Yeah. I don't know why it didn't work. It doesn't matter. It didn't work. The reason it didn't work won't be that I wasn't proficient because I'll have hours and hours of documented training. Courts now, base courts, I testify in use force based on my background. The other side will just stipulate that I'm an SME. They don't even try to fight me on it. What's uh, an SME? A subject matter the, expert. There you go. For use of force or for violence yeah. or for police tactics. Um, I'm recognized nationwide. I've, I've testified in not just courts in Nevada. I've testified in other states. And they have to introduce me and they have to give my bio and they have to give my, my background. And in court, they just stipulate, both sides just stipulate, yeah, he's a subject matter expert. Why so, is that? That's because of my zoo lion hours, my wild lion hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody argues with me about that. <laughs> so, you know. Let me ask you this. You, you, you touched on something. And one of the things that, um, you know, I heard one of your podcast interviews and you touched on civilian review boards and just kind of how, and I know you're not speaking for your department, but just the way your department does do these things with the use of force instances and um, how they're investigated. And one of my questions to you is because one, cops from my experience up here in the DC area hate the thought of any type of civilian reviewing anything that they have done. Two, they feel that it doesn't really bridge or help bridge the divide between the community and law enforcement. Um, when I heard you speak though, it was a complete opposite of that. So can you speak on that a little bit? Yeah, so let's talk about that the same way we talk about fear being an emotion or fear being knowledge. Um, if, first off, the courts are wise enough to, to, to frame use of force events from an officer's perspective and not an officer in 2020 hindsight, but an officer at that time in that moment experiencing what that officer is experiencing. The court standard is would a reasonable officer, not a reasonable civilian, mm -hmm. would a reasonable officer have responded in a similar manner? Right. So I am not for, I don't think it's fair to either side, the civilians or the law enforcement people, if you had a civilian review process where there, there weren't partners and you weren't giving them that perspective, you weren't giving them training that lets them know, hey, this is, this is why that standard exists. And, and even police officers get it wrong sometimes when they think of Graham and they think, oh, Graham's a reasonable person standard. No, it's not. It's a reasonable officer standard. And once again, it's not with 2020 hindsight. Well, after the fact, you knew that he had actually run out of bullets but he's still pointing the gun at us and still acting like he's going to shoot us. That, that 2020 hindsight can't be there. What was it like at the moment for that officer when he's seeing that gun pointed in his direction, that would be an example, right? Right. So civilian re review boards where they remain a civilian and I remain a cop and we're both trying to look at it from those opposing standards. Um, that, that would be something I wouldn't be too keen on. However, my experience and I will speak, I'll name the department, but I'm not speaking for the department, but I'm saying they've done a very good job. Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department, LVMPD uh, is a huge advocate of partnering with, civilian, with the community. And uh, it's awesome. 
and most departments are, by the way, the individual officers fear because when you make that statement, a civilian might listen to this and go, oh, that's why cops are effed up. Right. What they don't understand is what we're afraid of is we're afraid of just inviting a random person in to look at a video and judge a video with no context, no background, no, no understanding of law, no understanding of use of force, no understanding of department policy, no understanding of case law. Um, all, it should be hard to watch use of force videos if you're a good human. Like, I don't like making someone do, there's no other aspect of my life where I, I, I ask my kid, my wife to do something and she says no. And I go, hey, get in front of the car. Hey, show me your hands, man. You know, I don't do that to my wife. My wife has no <laughs> ability to say no to me and have an opinion. Right. Uh, Honey, do you want to go to dinner? No, get over here. Let me see your hands. Turn around. I'm going to frisk you for weapons. It's only in a law enforcement context do I begin to make people do certain things, stand certain places, stand a certain way not put their hands in their pockets. It's only at work I do that. I don't do it at church or some other, <laughs> holy crap, you know? So there's a, a framework around that, that if you're going to sit in judgment, civilian or cop, you need to understand that framework. Well, LVMPD partners with the community and they do a good job and they have civilian review boards. Uh, when we have an OIS, cause that's your most, uh, uh, most extreme use of force, Civilians actually respond out to our shooting scenes. Wow. They get embedded with a they get embedded with department personnel. They're allowed to view videotape officer. Uh, they're allowed to view body cam. They're allowed to view surveillance videotape that might have captured the event. Um, they're allowed to get a briefing, and that's at the beginning of the investigation. Um, though they're not the first ones out there, and they're not like the ones gathering that intel, but but they're allowed to look at all that intel. In addition, um, through the process, we eventually have a board where they get to, uh, we have four civilians that sit on that board and three of our department members. So the civilians actually out, out vote our PD. Hmm. And on every OAS, civilians get to vote on whether it's justified, on whether it's um, justified, but with tactics, poor tactics, like the officer's tactics, the moment the officer used lethal force, it is a justifiable use of force. But if they had used better tactics, maybe they wouldn't have had to. Hmm. They can they can come to that conclusion, or they can come up with not justified. In that case, the shooting was against policy, potentially against the law, uh, against policy. We've had shootings that were not reasonable based on policy, but they still were within case law, mm -hmm. so they weren't a criminal act. Mm -hmm. We'll discipline an officer for that at LVMPD. We'll, we'll, we'll provide training for that officer. Uh, we've had officers terminated for uses of force on duty um, that didn't meet the standard. So that civilian board can actually outvote commissioned personnel. That process has been wildly successful in my opinion. Uh, our civilian members, I find them to be engaged I find them to be reasonable. I find them to be uh, um, articulate. I find them to be um, understanding of the perspective of the community and understanding of the perspective of the officer. Uh, I find it to be wildly successful. And why? Because we partner with them. And we actually give them the tools to make a reasonable, um, a reasonable vote on these events.
and I find them to be reasonable in their conclusions. Um, I don't always agree with the civilians or with the with the PD or you know, yeah. I don't always agree, but at least we're having great conversation. I find the civilians to be extremely reasonable, and so. Uh, in those tactical use of force boards, they actually have a vote on whether the use of force was justifiable or not. And then we have a second board that goes over the tactics and whether our tactics uh, were appropriate or not. So, so do you, have you guys seen for them? Have, and I think it's a, a great thing to do. Have you seen that um, play out within community? Like as far as, you know, cause everything's about transparency. And I think a lot of departments now are, uh, they've either shot themselves in the foot by not being transparent and kind of keeping things back as opposed to being more transparent to where they just, you know, you can put things out there to, as they say, get ahead of the narrative. Um, do you see that this has helped bridge that gap? Like have officers seen the benefit in knowing that the civilian review board, because obviously people talk and they go out into their community and they say, no, the, you know, L LVMPD is doing a great job and this and that. And then all of a sudden you have kind of a way of this non-media promotional type of talk to the community. And so therefore the community has more trust in the actions of the officers on the street. Have you seen that as a benefit? So yes and no. Um, the same fear of police it's such an interesting dynamic and this is so awesome. You just brought it up. I feel like both media and political motives blur the lines on both sides. People are afraid of the police because of media portrayals. The mm. police are afraid of civilians because of media portrayals. And when we get together and we actually communicate with each other and we get in the same room, none of us are suddenly afraid of each other. It's unbelievable. Even on individual stops, I've had great interactions with the community repeatedly over and over all community, white, black, poor, rich, Hispanic, people who hardly speak English, tourists in Vegas. I've had phenomenal interaction uh, cross culturally uh, with communities professionally for over 20 years. That's what I always keep reminding myself. The thing you are afraid of the emotional fear you feel as an officer of the civilians in the community is not real. Don't buy into it. Understand it. Just like your fear prior to training. So you need to train yourself in these areas. What's the real problem? It's not that a person's a civilian. Crap, I didn't understand use of force. Or as a cop, I didn't understand how to lawfully use force against another human. As a civilian, using violence against another human unless you actually have a reasonable fear that you're going to be harmed is not on its face lawful. So I didn't have an understanding of lawful uses of force. So for me to have, my fear is not civilians judging cops. My fear is anyone judging and no, normally it's politicians. You look at the legislative things coming out right now and they are crazy. Just look at the, the state of, um, look at Minneapolis. We're going to defund the police. We're going to take the police away. The police are the problem. Everybody's for that after George Floyd. And now one year later, they just have said, let's put 6.4 million back into the budget right now. Emergency. 
right. to hire more cops because guess what? Crime is through the roof. And guess who's ticked off? The people who live in those communities, Mr. Politician, they're not happy with your craziness. Yeah. And they actually want the police back. And they never were the ones who necessarily wanted them gone. And, and that's been my experience repeatedly. Now, officers need to remember that too. I've had deep, rich, good uh, relationships with community groups throughout my policing career. And I've had great experiences on individual calls with community members repeatedly to include quote unquote bad guys. I've had positive interactions with dudes who are that I'm going to take to jail and send to prison. I've still had positive interactions that were respectful, but people like that. I've had life and death interactions with people that have ended with uh, uh, lethal use of force on, on events that I've been on. Mm -hmm. That's occurred. So I've had the whole spectrum, right? But any use of force is rare on any contact. So this is just not an, an epidemic. It's, it's, it's not. The majority yeah. of contacts are fine. So let's extrapolate that back to being a police officer and having civilians involved in the process. Take your emotional fear out of it. The, the fear is not that a civilian would be involved. The fear is that anyone would be involved that doesn't have uh, any kind of training or knowledge. Mm. Once training or knowledge is, is given to, just like when I become a cop, you gotta send me to the academy and give me training. Otherwise, how in the heck would you expect me to use force appropriately? If you don't require training, we actually need more training. We don't need to defund. We need to reprioritize our money and our time. Police departments should be training regularly. One of the things um, the city of Mesa, Mesa PD has just signed uh, an agreement with me and we're gonna provide training for the next calendar year under this agreement. And their goal is to make it so that their officers can train every single day they go to work at work on company time train in these key areas so that they are producing a better outcome and we're going to track that and that's, that's awesome. going to happen they're not going to train quarterly they're not training twice a year they're going to train if an officer desires it it's going to be voluntary they're going to have mandatory training several times a year for their officers but if an officer desires it they are going to give them the resources to train every single day at work and the idea is that we're going to improve performance. That improved performance is going to improve officer safety. When we improve officer safety, we're going to improve civilian safety and everyone's going to win. And uh, that's happening this year in, uh, in Mesa. I'm really that's, excited about that project. No, that sounds incredible. And I think one of the things that goes along with everything that you've talked about and one of the things that really struck me that I've heard you talk about as well is this uh, component about compassion training. And, you know, that's huge. And especially, I think that's even more, if not equally or more important than the use of force training or how to handle a subject or stuff like that, because this compassion training and how you described it, I was like, this is what needs to be done all across. I just interviewed a, um, a lieutenant from a large police department in the DC area. And he was telling me that, their department has actually built a brick and mortar wellness training center where it's staffed by therapists, trauma therapists, it's staffed by 
people that are experts in these fields of either empathy, compassion, whatever the case is. And he talked about all these things. And it was just awe striking to me because it was almost a model of what should be kind of like, you know, you want to you want to reform or do certain things to where you want to throw money at it. This is where it needs to be thrown at within, you know, police world. And so you talked about it where you use the word compassion and then with it training. How does that along with other training should be required? You talked about that. Can you can you tell the listeners what you mean by compassion training and what it entails? So training with struggle will produce the three C's. It'll produce compassion, um, competency, and confidence. So the compassion piece is when you train with struggle, when you um, strike each other in training, when you hold each other down, when you become physically taxed and you feel bodies on top of you, um, when you when that when you're required to use force on a teammate in a training scenario and still care for their well-being, I can't just go crazy, but I'm required to take them down. I'm required to hold them down, but I've got to be accounting for their physical well-being while I'm doing it. That mending, that mixing or um, blending of physical hands-on training with a requirement to care for one another produces compassion. And you get that in BJJ gyms, you get that in MMA gyms. Um, my son is 14 years old. He trains with me. He trains in some of the best gyms in the world. Vegas is a fight capital of the U.S. Extreme Couture MMA is one of the most well-known uh, MMA teams in the world. Our guys fight in Bellator in the UFC. I could have a UFC guy in my no-gi grappling class tomorrow. My son be in the class. I will let him train with my son because he understands how to hurt people how not to hurt people he understands how much pressure he understands when his partner's in trouble he understands when his partner should be tapping but they're not and so he will account for their health as opposed to just break them and that's the compassion piece of training uh george floyd was an unfortunate event where you have a person who clearly had a medical problem he ended up dying and you have officers continuing to kneel upon him uh, after he appears to be restrained. And I understand the outrage at that. Mm -hmm. If that happened at Extreme Couture tomorrow, if one guy was kneeling on another guy tomorrow on the mat and they agreed to roll or spar and one guy got top position and the guy underneath tapped out or quit or said, I'm done. And the guy on top wanted to maintain that and continue to do it. Everybody in the gym would go, hey, what are you doing? Get off. What are you doing? Stop it. Right. And we would not allow it. That wouldn't even happen to my son in a jujitsu gym. Why? Because we all know what it feels like to have our face put in the mat, to have our arm twisted a certain way, to be able to not catch your breath. We've been there, done that. Yep. And so the first part of hard physical training is that it actually makes more compassionate end users because they've experienced what those things feel like. That doesn't mean that they won't do them if needed. Uh, it just means that they control them and they mm -hmm. understand it. There's a compassion that comes from physical defensive tactics training. It doesn't come from compassion class or from <laughs> a PowerPoint or from a therapy session, although it can. Right. Those things can influence it. There's no, I don't care if you provide that training. You could provide that training though and not provide 
the physical and they won't get it. Yeah. But there is no one I know. When I have a brand new person in class, they're afraid of the black belt or the brown belt in class. That's exactly who I'm going to put them with. Because that person's going to take care of them. Yeah. I'm not going to put them with another person who's a beginner, who's afraid of what's happening, who's nervous, who doesn't really understand how much force is enough or not enough. That's how guys get hurt. Um, at one of my jujitsu gyms, we're currently making a curriculum that if you come in as a new jack off the street, for lack of a better term, you have to go through this program before you can go to regular class. Mm. We're not even going to let you spar with anyone until you have a certain foundation. And, and then we're going to let you do it because we're trying to instill the three C's, a little bit of compassion in you, understanding of what we're doing to each other could result in injury, a little bit of competence. Now I can see you scale it up or down. And now you have true comp confidence from training is true confidence. Confidence from putting my uniform and badge on, not confidence. That's not real. That can be extinguished in a second of mm -hmm. struggle. Mm -hmm. But confidence from hours of struggle, that doesn't go away. Yeah. That's real. That's earned. Yeah. So when we have hard training, we actually make more compassionate cops. We actually make more competent cops because what they're trying to do actually works. And we actually have cops who are truly confident, meaning I understand my skill set and I'm not fooled. I know that certain takedowns don't work for me. I'm not going to try them. I know that certain things I'm not good at. I'm going to work at getting better at that. It's true confidence from performance. And that performance is ongoing. So that's yeah. awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. I love the way you weave that into the whole uh, aspect of training from a use of force perspective, um, which is very important. Um, so we're getting down to the end of this podcast here. I wanted to just kind of ask you, it's kind of a two-parter, but just kind of let you go uh, two or three minutes. One, what is your overall message that you would like to get across to the listeners, whether they're from law enforcement community or non-LEOs? And then this kind of coincides with that too. I guess if how how would you how would you or what would you tell someone that wanted to get into law enforcement? I kind of feel like those two could kind of dovetail as far as what the overall message could be. Okay, we'll kind of finish up with this. Um, for my coppers out there, you are responsible for you. You are responsible for your performance. Um, if your department's not giving you the training, I started training because of me. I was motivated by me. I wasn't motivated by um, social pressure or political pressure or anything else. I wanted to be competent and, and, and I wanted to be a pro. And so part of that was staying in shape. I'm 20 I'm something years in, I still fit my, my original dumbbell. It, it might be a little bit tighter, if anything, like, like smaller. Um, I fit my uniforms that I started in. Um, you know, and, and so I have a responsibility to myself, to my family. Um, so I have a responsibility to be prepared and do the best I can to me, to my family, to my teammates and to my community. So as a police officer, if you are not training every single week and training is not lifting weights and running, that's conditioning. You might as well do something where you can get both. Like, like wrestling, jujitsu, MMA. You should be doing that every single week. 
uh, police departments, if you are serious about performance on these calls, if you're serious about it, provide a, a venue for your guys to train. And I mean, every week, it, it should be a requirement of the job. So to my LEO friends, um, that's, that's the message. To my non-LEO friends, um, since you're not police officers and you're not involved day to day in what really happens on these calls, your only source is politicians or the media. Be very wary of both of these sources. There's pretty much no topic I know where I trust either one of those two sources. Uh, increasingly, as I get older, I don't trust either one to provide me with an accurate uh, portrayal. And I'm not even mad at them. Uh, the media writes stories to sell papers. It's, it's, it's what they do. Politicians want to get reelected. They'll tell you whatever they think is popular. At the, they don't even have to believe in it. They have to just think, this is popular and we can make this narrative and we'll, we'll pursue it. So neither of those are good sources. If there is legislation that begins to curtail police officers and what they can or cannot do, understand that my friends and I actually follow the law. If, if, if the law needed to be changed because they thought cops were out of control, what makes you think we'll follow the new law? Okay, so just think critically if you're not a cop and you're my my friends, because you get a vote on this crap and you get a vote on the people who decide this crap. If cops are out of control based on current laws, what makes you think they would be in control if you pass another law? Mm -hmm. The fact is we're not out of control. So if you pass silly laws that restrict our ability to use force, we'll stop using force. We'll let people go. And the result is you will get victimized, not the politician who doesn't live in your community. And I'm not getting victimized because I will fight back to defend myself because I can still do that. Chad Lyman has never gone in harm's way with a violent person because I was worried about me. I can drive by that event and not pay attention. I can turn a blind eye to the guy who, if, if, if like in New York City, they said cops can't hold people down. Yeah. Okay, well, then I'm not going to arrest anyone who doesn't go into handcuffs because I'm not going to get charged with a crime while doing my job. Mm. So you can't allow as a civilian that kind of crap to pass because what's going to happen is I'm not going to remove those people from the community at a risk of getting charged with a crime myself. It's not going to happen. So I will defend myself if they attack me, but guess what? They're not going to attack me because I'm not trying to take them to jail anymore. <laughs> I'm going to attack you. And I'm not going to get robbed. I'm not going to get raped because I'll fight back and I'm mm -hmm. armed mm -hmm. and I'm really good at fighting back. So I'm not at risk, but I'll tell you who is the people who live in those communities. Mm -hmm. When you pass crazy laws, they handcuff the police. Guess what? What you're going to find is that we actually obey the law already. Do things sometimes go wrong? Yes. But there's not criminal intent. Do policies sometimes get violated? Yeah. We get held responsible and disciplined. By the way, if we violate policy enough, they fire us. There's still civil responsibility. The people can still get civil liability. And uh, criminally, if we break the law, for sure, we're going to get charged currently. Yeah. So we understand we're going to get charged as a cop. We're under no, this idea that we're going to get covered up, we know that's a total myth. That's Hollywood. So if you pass draconian laws that say, I can't stop people, 
I won't stop them anymore. If you say I can't fight people, I won't fight them. If you say the officer is a problem, I'll remove myself. But crime's going to go through the roof. Mm-hmm. We're already seeing that happen. So for my non-LEO friends, be critical of any. It, you see any media report that says all white people are bad. That should be a red flag. All black people are bad. That ought to be a red flag. All mm-hmm. cops are bad. That ought to be a red flag. A good amount of cops are bad. That's a red flag. That should be. Um, you shouldn't believe any of that nonsense. If you believe it and then pass legislation based on it, guess what? You'll find out we don't violate the law. We'll keep the law, which means we're not going to get in those fights anymore. Please, please don't do that. We want to serve. We want to go in harm's way. We're willing don't allow legislation and don't allow politicians to stay in office that target us. They should hold us accountable. There should be reasonable law by the way there is. And we do get held accountable and that's okay. That's proper. But please be cautious. For those of you who might think you want to be a police officer, be cautious. Uh, This is a calling. This is not a job. If you want to be a cop because you think, oh, I'll have benefits, I'll have a retirement, you're the same guys who become laydowns. You're the same guys the job breaks. You're the same jobs guys that get divorced and addicted to pain pills and, and hate, hate everybody and become an alcoholic. If this is a calling or you feel drawn to this, uh, then, then that's not a bad thing. Um, Uh, I have eight children, three daughters and five sons. I haven't encouraged any of them to be police officers. Wow. In my family, we have over six active cops right now. When I retire, it might end it for my family line, my particular family line. Because if none of my sons feel called to this, I'm not encouraging. My daughters, I'm completely steering them away. I don't want them to be cops. My sons, I'm completely not encouraging and if one of them feels called i've got one that's a little bit of a knucklehead i think he'll follow me (laughs) i I think he's going to be drawn to it if if all the others do something else i'll be happy um this is a very hard unforgiving profession it's not a joke it takes it's not easy it shouldn't be easy it's very 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 serious um to remain objective to uh, put the work in to be competent, compassionate, competent and confident. That takes a particular mindset. That takes a particular commitment. And if you're not that guy, you shouldn't be in this job. Now, I'm not saying my sons wouldn't be that guy, but they need to be that guy before they pursue it. Uh You shouldn't pursue this because you think you're going to have some kind of power over people or some kind of thing like that. Uh, You're a liability to us. We don't want you. Stay away. um, to someone who thinks they want to be a police officer. Um, I think you should go to school, maybe get a degree, maybe, uh, go get some real jobs and then come over, get some maturity, get married, go to the military, have some life experience and then come to this job. Cause you're going to make life and death decisions. You're going to make decisions on whether someone gets to go home or they go to jail. Mm-hmm. And you ought to have some life experience and maturity before you start making those decisions. Um, and this ought to feel like something you're drawn to. If it's not, if it's just a job, uh, you're not going to serve the community the way you need to. And those of us who do this, that it's not just a job to us, you'll stick out like a sore thumb to us. 
and we'll realize you're filling a seat and uh, you're just a stopgap and you're a guy that we're going to have to watch out for on calls because you'll do only what's required, only what the department makes you. Uh, if you hear the word training, you're going to complain about it and you're going to ask, am I getting paid? If that's your attitude, go do something else because there's too much at stake and dudes like you make it hard for dudes like me who are pros and who work our butt off to do this thing and to become true professionals and competent, uh, compassionate, confident, competent dudes like me can't stand dudes like you. You're almost, you're way worse than civilians. You're not almost, mm. you're worse than civilians and you're a liability. So this thing is not a game. Uh, it's not just a job. Well, I think that's encapsulates everything that, I mean, is important, right? And what you are doing with not only your career, but just your attitude, how you've turned that into action because you saw something that you needed to work on, which changed your mindset, which then you started to change the mindset of others. And you've continued to do that and you're continuing to do that. And that's why I'm so honored to have you on this show. I'm so thankful for your insight. Um, and those, uh, anybody that's listening, can you just tell the listeners where they can get in contact with you, what Instagram accounts, what social media yeah. stuff, um, yeah. and just go ahead and give that out uh, real quick. So super active on social media, simply because I like to share and give back. Uh, C4C operator, Charlie for Charlie operator. Uh, Chad Lyman, uh, you search me either way on Instagram, you're going to get me Facebook, Chad Lyman, YouTube, Chad Lyman. Um, also, Progressive Force Training, PFC Training, pfctraining.com. Uh, we train, uh, we're fully capable of coming to departments and uh, showing how you can institute uh, full training systems that will either integrate with what you currently do or actually um, replace we understand case law, we understand use of force, we understand police use of force because we've done it for over 20 years. And uh, we can institute those kind of programs for you. If you have a desire, we're fully mobile, we can come to you or do it in, in Las Vegas. So you can hit me up through either Progressive Force Concepts or online. I'm very receptive. If you message me, I'll respond. That's how MC and I hooked up to do this podcast. It's through social media. So um, I'm happy to serve in any way I can and love to train folks. So uh, look forward to hearing from you folks. Uh, Code 4 Combat on Facebook too, if you, if you, it's Chad Lyman or Code 4 Combat. Awesome. Thank you so much for being a guest. Again, I'm honored. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Be safe. You too. Appreciate your time. Have a good one. Bye -bye. You too.